May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A few things that aren't being reported about uh, the events there in Libya, uh, but Jim Daly of Focus on the Family uh, is reporting that um, those 21 men were singing songs of praise to Jesus as they were killed. That they had been held for several weeks before uh, their death and uh, that they had been tortured uh, that they had been uh, tortured in order to renounce the name of Jesus Christ and to embrace Islam. And uh, sadly, it won't be the last of the martyrs that we see. <clears throat> you know, it's an appropriate thing for us to keep this in mind today because the passage that we have before us in Titus the little letter from Paul that we've been walking through these last few weeks. This passage that we'll look at today is the very reason why these men died. And uh, it's appropriate that um, we spend a little time wrestling through this passage today. Hopefully, um, you all have made a habit of reading this letter um, I encourage people to read this letter um, all, I, shouldn't, I should not count the words, how many are in there. There's not a whole lot, is there? Uh, encourage folks to read this every day for the nine weeks that we were in this uh, book, in this sermon series. And I know some have taken up that challenge and uh, it's not too late. There's still uh, a few more weeks that we'll be walking through this book, this little letter. And uh, maybe you're finding that... Uh, these scriptures are becoming a part of your outlook, of your mind. Uh, maybe you're experiencing a bit of rewiring, and that's a good thing. Um, and so I'd encourage you to jump in and to read with us this little letter um, for the next few weeks. Humanity has always uh, been attracted to utopia, to utopian ideas. And utopia is a Greek word that refers to an imaginary place where everything is fine, where everything is good, that there's nothing evil, nothing wrong with this place. And in the 1800s, there were several uh, folks, there were several actually societies that sought to bring about creating utopias here on earth. One that I found really interesting as I was reading about this was a man named George Rapp. And George was born in... Germany in November of 1757, and uh, he was a simple peasant in the southern part of Germany, and when he was 34 years old, he declared to the magistrate, to the civil magistrate, I am a prophet and called to be one, and this got him thrown in jail. Today, you could probably go to a civil magistrate, and that wouldn't get you into prison. They'd probably just put you on a, some kind of list somewhere. Uh, but back then, the marriage of church and state was uh, rather strong. And uh, so if you spoke against the church or weren't a churchman and you said things like this, they threw you in jail. So George found himself in prison for a couple of days when he was 34 years old. But uh, it didn't stop him. When they let him out, he continued preaching. 
He continued to encourage people to uh, know that Jesus Christ's return was imminent, that it was going to happen during their lifetimes, and they needed to prepare. And the way they needed to prepare was that they needed to create heaven here on earth. They needed to create a utopian society. And eventually he got about 12,000 people following him in the south of Germany. They were called harmonists or... uh, well, that's the best name for him. We'll keep it, keep it at that. He was imprisoned again in 1802 because the, uh, the authorities in Germany were starting to get a little concerned. If you get a, a movement of 12,000 folks, that's a pretty good following. That's uh, Yuma County and a handful of folks from Washington County uh, getting a little rowdy. And uh, they imprisoned him, and then they released him again in 1803. And he decided, because of his persecution of his religious beliefs, it was time for him and his followers to pool their resources and to flee to the land of Israel, that he called it, the United States of America. And so in 1803, about 800 people made their way from Germany to the U.S., and they found themselves in Pennsylvania and bought some land from their pooled resources, and they created a community that they named Harmony. And Harmony was founded in 1805. And they contracted with one another that all of their earthly goods, all their property would be held in common. (laughs) Some of us think that'd be a good thing because we look at what other folks have and we think, I'd like that too. And the folks in Harmony thought the best way to bring about Harmony, the best way to bring about Utopia is if everybody's equal, everybody has the same stuff. And things went so well for them in Harmony in Pennsylvania uh, that they ended up selling their little community to uh, some Quakers, or no, excuse me, Mennonites, and they sold it for 10 times as much as they bought it for. And then they traveled to Iowa and they founded New Harmony in Iowa. And uh, this was not the only movement for creating a utopian society in the 1800s. Uh, the Shakers were probably the most, uh, the, the best at creating, uh, the most, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? They, they, they did the best job at it. They had the most success. Uh, they established about 20 communities. Uh, there was the Oneida community, the Brook Farm community, the Fruitlands community. All these communities seeking to create utopia, a perfect society here on earth. The 1840s marked the height of this movement. The 1840s, there was many people who were experimenting with living together in communes and trying to bring about a perfect society. And it seemed that all around, the, the idea was that we could do this if we just found enough Americans who could pull themselves up by their bootstraps and who believe that nothing is impossible. Sounds like a Disney movie. Of course, 1861 brought the beginning of the Civil War. And it really, in essence, squashed any sort of utopian thinking in America. In fact, I'd say that we're, we're still suffering from uh, the cynicism that the Civil War brought about into our nation. I think it's interesting because uh, there is something in us that longs for utopia, isn't there? 
There's something in us that wants everything equal, everything fair, everything right, no one to suffer, except for maybe the people we don't like, but there's something in us that wants the world put to right. And there's all sorts of efforts in order to do this. In fact, uh, last week's sermon was on politics. And, and really one of the driving forces behind politics is the effort to make things right in the world. Uh, to try to make a, a just and fair society for everybody. And humans have failed at creating this. Just this past week in Ray... School was canceled for two days in Rayberry. School was canceled for two days because of a threat, an alleged threat, a a threat that has ended up being found to be false, a little little prank that went a little too far. But even here, we take those things seriously. We take threats against the school seriously because we know we do not live in a perfect, safe world. Society, we know that it just takes one crazy with a knife or a gun or a bomb. It is all too familiar to us. And there's something in us that just screams out for things to be made right. Let me tell you that it's a Christian notion. It is a biblical notion to cry out for things to be made right. It is a notion that is contained in this book, the Word of God. Today we're going to see a little bit of it. Before Paul gets to helping us see it, though, he's going to help us remember where we're at. And not just where we're at, where we've been. And we're going to start reading in Titus chapter 3, verse 3. And I just want to look at the first verse real quick. It says, At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Did you catch what he said at the beginning? He said, at one time. Some of you might have thought, he just described some of me when you read that. But Paul says, at one time, and then he includes himself. The great Pharisee. You know, as a Pharisee, one of the requirements to be a Pharisee, you had to have the Old Testament memorized. He had the Old Testament memorized. This guy's a religious nut. This guy is very much seeking to live his life to please God. And he throws himself under the bus along with us when he says, at one time, we. Don't you appreciate it when somebody as great as the Apostle Paul has a good view of himself? (laughs) How easy is it for us to think better of ourselves than we ought? And we are most prone to this when we're around folks that we don't think so highly of. We're most prone to this when we see folks around us that we, you know, look down at our, our nose at them. As I've said before, the the good Lord people. Oh, good Lord. Oh, good Lord, look at them. Whenever you feel that in you, remember Titus 3.3. 3. 
Remember that as a follower of Jesus, that's supposed to be in the past. That's not supposed to be who you are. Because that's not who you are in Jesus Christ. That's who you are as a sinner. That's who you are before we're going to get to this word that lots of people grimace and freak out and don't know what to do with. Before you were saved. I kind of got to say that with a little southern drawl. Before you were saved. Before you were born again. Before you came to follow Jesus. This is who, this is who I am. This is who you were. And that doesn't sound like a very utopian society, does it? In fact, he describes what we already got. He describes where it is we live. We don't really need help with him telling us this. The, the one part we need help hearing is this is who you were. This is who you were. If you follow Jesus Christ, if you are saved, if you know Christ as Savior, this is who you were. And in a sense, he's telling us why we needed to be saved. Why do we need salvation? I mean, you look at that list and it becomes really evident, don't we? We need salvation. We're foolish. We're disobedient. We're deceived, enslaved. We have malice. Envy, hatred. I mean, these are all things that work against the utopian society. These are all things that make us worthy of death because of sin in our lives. And this is all what Paul is setting up for us to see that because of these things, we needed to be saved. In verse 4 through 7, this is one sentence in the Greek. Verses 4 through 7. One sentence. I think his Greek teachers, maybe they had different standards in Greek. Maybe they liked run-on sentences. Because Paul does it all the time. I was taught that have short, concise sentences. Don't go on and on and on. Paul loves to just draw them out. And in fact, there's a bunch of hapax legomena in this verse. And you're thinking, is that a disease? And do, I want to read this. Habax legomena is just a fancy Latin way of saying that there's a bunch of words that happen in here that don't happen elsewhere in Paul's writings. These are a bunch of words that are foreign to Paul. Paul doesn't always talk like this. And we would know how he often writes because he wrote a good chunk of the New Testament. And when they compare this to other parts that he wrote, there's all these words that he doesn't usually use. And so in verse 8, where he says, this is a trustworthy saying, most people go, oh, the trustworthy saying is the sentence he just said. The trustworthy saying, he got this from others. In fact, most scholars see this as an early Christian creed. An early way to articulate what it means to be saved. An early way to articulate what it means to be a disciple, to be a Christian, to follow Jesus Christ. So verses 4 through 7, we'll consider all at once. (laughs) Good luck, right? Uh, It says this. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. See, and then my Bible gets it wrong because it puts a period there. 
He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. Now that's a mouthful. Wouldn't that be fun if we had everybody memorize that when they first came to Christ in our church? And some of you are like, oh, brother, please, no. But I think that's what the early church did. At least some practiced this where they they had to come up with a way to formalize because they didn't have this thing yet because it was in the process of being written. It was in the process of being lived. And they had to come up with ways to help people, you know, because many folks were illiterate. And if they could read, they didn't have much to read yet. And so they had to come up with a way that people could remember doctrine. Because as we've been saying, Paul is writing to his young associate Titus on an island paradise, Crete. And he's writing to Crete, which we've also described as Las Vegas on Hawaii. And here we have him saying that there's three things that make a church go. One is godly leadership. The next is good doctrine. And the third is good works. And he hits the good doctrine right here. This sentence is the crux of good Christian doctrine. This sentence is the crux of orthodox teaching about what it means to be saved, to follow Jesus. Do you catch what he says about God and his character? And one of the things you need to do is, do you see God this way? This is God's word, and God is telling us how he sees himself. And one of the things you need to see is, do you see God the way God sees himself? How did Paul explain it? How did Paul picture God? Kindness and love. (laughs) You know, I've gone to some churches, and I've been around some Christians who weren't very kind. I mean, let's throw love out because, you know, we love pizza. We love dogs. We love our trucks. I mean, we love stuff. We don't even know what love means anymore. Let's just focus on kindness. Because kindness is one of those words that I think we understand when we experience it. It's one of those things that you just know whether it happened or not. And there's some churches that aren't very kind. In fact, some of the churches, I would say verse 3 describes them more. The kindness of God. Why did God save you? Why did God, if you haven't experienced salvation, if you haven't started following Jesus Christ, why did God make this possible for you? Because he's kind. Because of his kindness. Because some translations render it his goodness. But there's something in God that wishes to be kind to you. And the next word, love, it's not the best translation. In fact, I think it's better to translate this part of the Bible, goodness and loving kindness. Because the word for love there is the Greek word that we get our English word for philanthropy from. It's not agape. It's philanthropia. And this word... Philanthropy. What does that mean? Philo means love. Anthropy. Love of ants, right? No. Anthropy. Man. 
Love of humans. You know, this verse tells us that God is the greatest philanthropist. (laughs) That God loves humankind. And his love for humankind and his kindness towards humankind is ultimately shared and shown in the person of Jesus Christ. See, to be a, a philanthropic God means that you're going to work for the good of everybody on planet Earth. To be a God who is seeking to love and be kind means that that's just how he's predisposed. That's what he does. That's how he's wired. This is the, the reason. So what does God do? It's one thing for God to be kind and loving, but actions count, don't they? It says this. I keep losing my place. <laughs> God, our Savior, appeared. You see the word there, God, our Savior? In fact, we'll see the word, our Savior, again in verse 6, but it's a, it is attached to the person of Jesus Christ. And here Paul is saying that God and Jesus are the same. But I think here he's referring to God, our Savior, uh, Jesus Christ, because he appeared. Jesus appeared to us in the flesh, and we celebrate that at Christmas time, and we celebrate that in the person of Jesus, that God was 100% God and 100% man, and he appeared and he lived here on planet Earth. And he lived here because of God's kindness and God's goodness and God's loving kindness. He saved us. He saved us. Now, this is an interesting term because most churches in America now, at least, um, how do I put this? Trendy churches in America. Um, Churches that, you know, want to be relevant. They they downplay this language a lot of times. This saved language. This born again language. Uh, And partly because it just, you know, people don't even know what it means anymore. And in fact, a lot of people find it to be Oh, uh, irritating? Offensive? What do you mean I'm lost? What do you mean I need to be saved? (laughs) A lot of people balk at that idea that they need salvation, that they need saving from something by someone. Good Americans, they surely don't need saving. But remember, Paul started out with where we're at, who we were before our saving. And he pointed out lots of things that if you don't follow Jesus, are, not should, are true of you. They're true of everyone who doesn't follow Christ. Sadly, they're still true of some who follow Christ, or at least claim to follow Christ. Remember that list? You see, Paul is saying that that is the list we needed saving from. We needed saving from that type of life, that type of personality, that type of of crookedness, that type of of sin in our lives. And not just that, he gives us lists in other places in the New Testament. He's pretty thorough at times. He's given a thumbnail sketch here. We needed saving. And how do we get it? I mean, how is somebody saved? This would be a really good question for you to be asking at this point. Whether you know the answer or not, it's a very important question for you to wrestle with. How is one saved? 
Because, you see, what's going on is we're being saved for something and to something, and you'll see that here at the end. Remember, I started this out with talking about a utopian society. You see, we're being saved towards something and for a purpose. But how? How are we saved? Are we saved because we're good people? Are we saved because we do all the right things? We we pray enough times. We show up at church enough. We read our Bible enough. We give enough. How is it that we are saved? Are we going to believe what the Muslims teach? That the way to be saved is through our works? Do the Christians believe what the Buddhists teach? That the way to be saved is to realize that we're just all one with the one consciousness? And the realization of that should help you somehow. What is it that the scriptures teach us as Christians is the way to be saved? Paul tells us right here. Not because of righteous things we have done, but because of mercy, because of God's mercy. You are not saved by anything you do. You can't save yourself. If you think that, you're lost. You're deceived. Like verse 3 said, you cannot save yourself. It is impossible. It will never happen. But it's by God's mercy. And this tells us the how. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. And there's a bunch of talk about this verse and what it means. And I I think what Paul is getting at is that when you trust Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit washes you, washes you clean of your sins. That you are now washed of every past sin. And then you are renewed. You are made new for the future. You are made new for your future And the future of the church, the future of this world. In fact, this word, this renewal, excuse me, the regeneration word, this word only happens here in Paul's writings. It's a regeneration word. And it happens in one other time in all of the Bible. One other time, this particular Greek word happens, and it's used by Jesus. And he uses it in Matthew 19. I think Paul wants to link up with what Jesus is saying in Matthew 19. In fact, we have the verse for us. Uh, Matthew 19 says this. Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, at the renewal, the word that is translated renewal there is the same word regeneration here. At the regeneration of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. You see, in a sense, what Jesus is saying, that everything will be made new. Everything is going through a regeneration. Paul talks about this in Romans 8, where the the creation is groaning out. And Jesus is telling us that all things will be made new. But there's one creature. There's one creature in creation 
that rebels. Actually, the scriptures don't tell us just one creature. Uh, It tells us that there's some other creatures that have rebelled as well. We call one of them Satan. The Old Testament calls him Hillel. And we think of others as demons, fallen angels, fallen uh, spirit beings of some sort. And there is a sense that these angels, these beings that are in the spirit realm and humans have rebelled against God and we have fallen. And because of our rebellion, we have brought chaos on the cosmos. We have brought all of nature into a state of chaos. And Jesus' picture in Matthew 19 is that one day this will all be put to rights. One day all of it will be regenerated. And it's like Paul is saying, for you to make sure that you're regenerated and to make sure you're part of that utopian society that's coming, to make sure that you're saved, this is how it's done. The way it's done is through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Six, whom he poured out on us graciously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now, 80% of the commentaries, and I haven't read all of them, but I'm estimating, because a lot of them I read, take the washing as a reference to baptism. I don't agree. I don't agree with that reading. I I think it's best not to see this as a reference to baptism, partly because the word baptism is not in here and the idea of water isn't in here. Another part is because, and here I'm going out on a big limb, Roman Catholicism, Anglicans, many Presbyterians, Methodists teach that this verse refers to baptism. And teaching that this verse refers to baptism sets you up theologically for infant baptism. It sets you up for baptizing infants. And that's at that point, regeneration and renewal occurs. That's in fact, this is the text that Catholics refer to as the verse for regeneration of the removal of the sin nature in an infant when they do infant baptisms. I don't agree with that. I believe that believers, once you confess faith in Jesus Christ, then you're baptized. And I believe that once you confess faith in Jesus at that point in time, you experience a washing and a renewal by the Holy Spirit. That at that point in time, and why do I say that? Because the context of this verse tells us that. When was the Spirit poured out on us? What does it say? It was poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ. Through is a, is a word of agency. Through is who did it. It was done by Jesus. It was done by faith in Christ. At that moment, we were washed, we were renewed by the Holy Spirit. Another part of why I think it's best not to see baptism there is because How many people go through life confused? Confused because they were baptized when they were an infant. How many people are currently in hell 
because they had a false notion of their standing with God because of their baptism. See, it also teaches us here that it is not a work. And if we say that it's baptism, then we get into the arena of, well, is it a work that I perform? Is it something I did or is it something God does? Is it something the priest does or the pastor does or is it something God does? And this text unabashedly, unashamedly keeps telling us it's God. God is the one who does the saving. Nothing we do. And at that moment we place our faith in Jesus, we are washed We are renewed by the Holy Spirit through the person of Jesus. This is what gives us the hope of eternal life. When you read eternal life, most people think of strumming harps in heaven because Hollywood has helped us have that picture. But Jesus and the Old Testament and the New Testament regularly talk about the new heavens and the new earth, that there is going to be a utopian society created on planet earth because it is going to be regenerated. It is going to be made new and you and I will function and be who we always were meant to be, who we always were created to be. And God will bring this about at the end of the age. And that's where that longing for utopia comes from. It's a longing for Eden. It's a longing for what it used to be. It's a longing that God placed in our hearts that says something's not right in a world where 21 men are beheaded by religious extremists, where children die from malnutrition, where churches today are being bombed by terrorists. There's something in all of us that says this is wrong and it needs to be made right. And Jesus affirms us in that longing. But he also scolds us in that longing. Because he says, you're part of the problem. Steve, you're part of the problem how you treat your wife and your kids. You're part of the problem. How do you treat others? You're part of the problem. How you choose to drive in Denver. You're part of the problem. When you get behind the really slow car in Ray, you're part of the problem. When you want to wring the necks of the Raiders, you're part of The problem. You see, I'm part of the problem. You're part of the problem. And we need saving. And thanks be to God through his kindness and his goodness and his love. He has made a way. Now, I don't know if you've trusted in Christ as your savior today. And if you've done it in the past, I have no clue. It's not for me to judge, not for me to figure out. It's just for me to tell you what's available to you. And we don't have a habit here of altar calls and making you do anything. That's between you and God. So if you're freaking out, just breathe easy. You see, 
What's really important, that's super important, but what's of, of secondary importance is what Paul says this leads to. In verse 8, where does this lead? This is a trustworthy saying, which I think Paul's talking about what he just said. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God, those who have made four through seven true of them by trust in Jesus Christ, so that those who have trusted God may be careful to devote themselves to what? Doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. It's almost like this philanthropic God wants us to be philanthropists. It's like the way that God designed this, the way that people are going to want to love God, the way that people are going to be drawn to his kindness and to his love and to his goodness is if his people are kind and loving and good. Isn't he brilliant? It's almost like he's God and really smart. I'm sarcastic, which I... During Lent, I'm trying not to be sarcastic. Yeah, that's like sarcasm wasn't one of the sins, so I'm cool. You see, imagine a church that lived for the good of the community. Imagine Christians who instead of sitting around figuring out how can we boycott this or how can we get against this or how can we make this not happen or how can we keep this out of our town or how can we picket this? Imagine a church that decided to live its life for the world. A church that lived its life for those that are outside of these walls. A church that lived its life Did you see what Paul said? Good works. It's not what saves you, but now you're saved, so go out and do some good works. Why? Because your God that you claim to love and follow does good works. Why? Because the God you claim to love and follow, who you're trying to be like, is a philanthropist. Why? Because this God wants hospitals established. Because this God wants children in slavery rescued. Because this God wants domestic abuse to end. Because this God wants addictions to cease. Because this God wants all things put to right. Now, I'm not suggesting that we buy that we that we collect everything and we have common goods and we rename ray harmony <laughs> but what i am suggesting is that in your everyday ordinary life live it for others do good works Not because that's what gets you saved. Not because that makes me happy. That's not because you get a star from Jesus. But because that's how a dying world will see the goodness and loving kindness of God. You know, they got those cheesy sayings, but this one's really kind of true. You may be the only Jesus anyone ever sees. And I believe that. And I believe that that's how God's designed the church to function in this world. May we be a church 
That is winsome. May we be a church that's out in this community doing good. May we be a church that is creating a counterculture for the common good of Ray. May everyone, whether they believe what we believe or not, whether they oppose us or not, may everyone benefit from the good works that emanate from the people in this church. Amen. Now may the Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. May we be examples of God's love and kindness to Ray and this world. Amen.